When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Braintree. If you're searching for the right payments API, Braintree makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to braintreepayments.com slash podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Behold, Ignorance, and Want edition. It's Wednesday, December 24th, 2014. On today's show, the hacking and subsequent data dump of internal communiques of Sony Pictures, it spread schadenfreude and recrimination everywhere, but is it newsworthy? And then every generation gets the Hollywood it deserves. How did the franchise with its iterated sequels come to dominate the American movie business? And what does that mean exactly? And finally, topic three, in which I say Christmas movies and a freeform discussion ensues. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, before we dive in, Julia, we've got some Slate Plus business to take care of. Yeah, we need to let our listeners know that we have two special Slate Plus features this week. One, our normal Slot Plus bonus segment will be a discussion of Serial. In case you've uh, exhausted all of the discussions of Serial that have gone on since the finale aired last Thursday and you still hunger for more, we will tell you what we thought uh, in the bonus segment at the end of the show. However, also, we have an extra totally distinct Slate Plus option for members, which is we are recording a completely unexpurgated and unedited version of this show, which we will release to you if you are a Slate Plus member. So you can hear our bloopers and retakes and scuttlebutt and all of the awkward, rangy, ugly underpinnings of the show that usually Anne uh, mercifully snips out. We will share them with you. So if you want to listen to that version of the show, which will also appear uh, separately in the Slate Plus podcast feed, you can pause here and go find that one now. 
If you don't enjoy concision. <laughs> if you like things to not be economical, efficient, and pleasant to listen to, go check that out. Stammering. Yay. Dana, who listening to this show enjoys concision? <laughs> Good point. I think we're safe on that count. All right. Anyway, on to topic one. All right. Well, uh, diving in, it is now asserted by the FBI that North Korea is indeed the source of a massive hack attack on Sony Pictures. Uh, some people still dispute this. Anyway, it was uh, a supposed retaliation from making a Seth Rogen comedy depicting the assassination of North Korea's sitting leader, Kim Jong-un. It's revealed many of the inner workings of a major studio and exposed to light bickering emails between producer Scott Rudin and studio chief Amy Pascal, among many other things. Uh, there were catty remarks about Angelina Jolie and and uh, the very worst of the crop was uh, were racist jokes about the president. Julia, let me start with you. Let's treat this first as a media story rather than a movie story. Before we can even begin to contemplate what these documents mean, if anything, uh, we have to contemplate whether we're allowed to contemplate them at all, in public at least. Julia, you run a major American media brand. Are we allowed to comment on these publicly, or does that make us fences for stolen goods? I mean, this is a huge story and a confusing story and one where I think the general reader needs journalists to help them understand what the hell is happening and why. Uh, so, yes, I think journalists should comment on it, although I think there's a difference between trying to help people understand what is happening uh, or using this information to report important or interesting things about the way the world of uh movie making works and just like ferreting out little bits of useless gossip from these data dumps. Uh, I think different organizations can come to different conclusions on that, but we've steered clear of just mining the emails for gossip, uh, but we've covered the hacks in many other ways. To me, what's crazy about this story is it is so many different kinds of stories, right? It's a technology story about the capabilities of hacking. It's a geopolitical story about whether North Korea did this, if so, how they did it, uh, and what the appropriate or necessary response from the U.S. government is. There's sort of a like public-private confusion story where it now appears that we might be going to cyber war as a nation because of an attack on a private corporation. Uh, it's a free speech story about how, you know, President Obama and John Kerry should feel about what appears to be an instance of a, another nation state basically trying to get one of our corporations to censor itself. Um, it's also a media story. Is it appropriate to report on these uh, incursions and how? Um, and I think there's like a few other angles, too. Then there's the culture story of what have we learned about how movies get made and how does that make us feel? And, it's kind of a cybersecurity cautionary tale for other companies as well. Right. Uh, there's also the kind of like, oh, crap, what if every email I ever send someday got read by everybody in the world? Like chilling effect in your personal communications story. What else? There's like three more angles that I'm missing. Uh, but it just is the whole thing is like a crazy hybrid beast, which has made it very interesting to see how people are covering it because it's a little bit confusing to try and get to the bottom of it. All right. Well, Dana, so uh, the strong form of uh, don't do the bidding of whoever did this hacking was stated by Judd Apatow, the writer director. He says in a tweet, he says, releasing private Sony emails to hurt people is the same as releasing nude photos of Jennifer Lawrence. Why are they okay to print? I guess he's saying the qualifier there is to hurt people. But Aaron Sorkin, similarly, in an op-ed for The New York Times said, I'm not crazy about Americans calling other Americans un-American, which is, if you think about it, an incredible rhetorical windup, uh, <laughs> which we can unpack later. But so let's say, he says, 
Let's just say that every news outlet that did the bidding of the hacker group Guardians of Peace is morally treasonous and spectacularly dishonorable. Dana, you're a public figure to a degree. Uh, I'm a public figure to a degree. So is Julia. By virtue of writing for Slate, if Slate magazine were hacked uh, and its internal documents were made public, uh, 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 placed uh, on public display uh, on a server, don't you think we would uh, plead for a kind of reticence or decency on the part of media outlets? Yeah, I think, and I think appropriately so. And I think, as Julia said, like I think a lot of outlets are showing some of that measure in decency. Others, like Gawker, are just sort of spreading out all the juicy gossip, and you can watch the entire relationship of Amy Pascal and Scott Rudin disintegrate over email. And if you want to go down that road, it's definitely out there. But actually, Jacob Weisberg on our own site published something not quite as blowhardy and fist shaking as Aaron Sorkin's rant in the Times. But he actually said, you know, it's inappropriate to uh, to to delve into these documents publicly because essentially, yeah. You are you are doing the bidding of the hackers and sort of embarrassing a lot of people that didn't need to be embarrassed. Right. I mean, I think the counterpoint to that is, which Justin Peters wrote a piece on our site arguing, is that it's a news event, right? A, it's a news event. B, like no information that journalists get is is leaked by people with pure and spotless motives that just desire to spread truth in the world. Like everybody, you know, if you're leaking, if you're telling stories about your organization, if you're tipping off a journalist that maybe they should write about X, Y, or Z arm of your business that's not doing so well, like you're trading favors or settling scores or doing whatever the hell you're doing that causes you to to bring a journalist into your life. And if we had, if we scrutinized the motives of leakers for every single journalistic story that we ever went after, we we would um, end up writing about many fewer things, uh, which I also found persuasive. And I do think there is a way in which um, the fact that Sony makes movies and not like iPods or cars or um, isn't like a bank makes it feel like, oh, it's just those people in Hollywood playing with their funny producers and their mean comments about people who are on the covers of magazines. Like, that's not important. We don't need to know about that stuff. Like, let's just leave those poor Hollywood types alone. And I'm not sure we would see that same kind of arguments if it were about people whose jobs we perceived as more important. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, imagine this had happened to Goldman Sachs. And, you know, uh, a widespread self-dealing, insider trading, you know, political influence purchasing had been exposed. Of course, there's a public interest. You know, to me, what's interesting about the story is that it's it's much harder to articulate what the possible public interest of, you know, backstage sniping between Amy Pascal and uh, Scott Rudin is. You know, there may be some news interest to the fact that people who are enormously powerful in the content business who you know, place dreams into the unconscious of the entire globe effectively, you know, find racist jokes amusing. I, I do think that there's a, a degree of, um, you know, it's not just a prurience that's being served by reporting that and making that public uh, and contemplating what it means. But, you know, I, 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 I have trouble coming out strongly on one side of this issue or the other. On the one hand, I think this is Hollywood getting 
you know, lifted by its own petard here, in part because it's turned its own business into news. It 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 exploits an enormous amount of what's called I I hate this euphemism earned media, basically free media because it's a glamour business and everyone wants to report on it as if it's news, as if it's in the public interest. And so all of a sudden to do a one eighty and say oh, nobody here but us chickens, right? We're not. This isn't newsworthy. Don't look behind the curtain to me is a, is slightly hypocritical at the same time you know the hacker did not have the public interest in mind this is not daniel ellsberg and the pentagon papers but steve i just would i do think that we should recognize that the uh, the amount of what was stolen and and made public goes way way beyond i mean the 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 top end you know the sort of tip of the iceberg maybe the gossipy emails but aren't people's social security numbers and medical files and essentially all of the employment records of thousands of sony employees now up for grabs so let's divide it into three, right? There's personal information that I think almost everyone degrees, uh, agrees is totally irresponsible to uh, make public. So social security numbers, on and on and on. Uh, then there's somewhere in the middle are the internal dialogues about what movies get made and why they get made. I mean, the most fascinating thing about the Rudin-Pascal um, uh, exchange is the politics behind flattering Angelina Jolie out of making a giant epic Cleopatra in order to get the director who would make Cleopatra to make another movie. I can't forget which. It's fi- I think it's Fincher. Rudin doesn't want him to make Cleopatra. He wants him to make X, uh, the Steve Jobs uh, uh, biography. It's totally fascinating. And it seems to me, is it newsworthy? I don't, I can't, that's the one that seems to me to be exactly on the fence. And then utterly newsworthy is, uh, are the racist emails for the simple reason that there is an awesome responsibility to making movies that get beamed out, not only across our country, but all over the globe. And if, you know, if you're making comments like that, and you're also casting movies, deciding how people of color get portrayed in them, it, it seems to me that, that it's, almost impossible not to report on that. Am I wrong, Julia? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to think that there's plenty of stuff worth reporting on in these emails. The other question then is about the notion that this like deeply silly Seth Rogen movie is, is the cause of a geopolitical incident. And I've had conversations a few different ways with people, some of whom think, free speech man, got to be absolute. We, we need to have the right to make fun of anybody we want in the world, including showing the like face of a sitting world leader melting off uh, and I've had conversations with other people who say, this movie sounds like kind of outre, like, like really? Like if, if, if France made a movie where Obama were assassinated at the end and had his face melted off, we'd all be like, okay, viva France, free speech. Like, is there, is there something different about this movie, either in its violence or its silliness that should make people less concerned about the censorship of it? Or are we just complete absolutists about it? And I've I've had more people come in on the maybe this movie is different frame than I would have expected. Where do you guys land? I mean, I guess I would try to put myself in the category of the free speech absolutists and say that if this movie can get made and find an audience, I don't think it's it's North Korea's job to decide whether the world gets to see it or not. Um, but of course, when you when you frame it in you know an analogy to watching our president's face melt off or be blown up or whatever happens to Kim Jong Un in, in the interview, it feels different. At the same time. Isn't Kim Jong Un, by being one of the world's worst dictators, who's essentially running a 
uh, I don't even know what you would call it, just a, a, a Pr- blacked out camp. state, yeah, prison, yeah, state. A, a, yeah, a state-sized prison camp. Isn't he sort of putting himself uh, out there for you know satire and or fictionalized assassination? Right, right. But if you say this, I mean, this seems like a much more sensible satire to me than whatever someone might be trying to say by making some other movie. But it does... Um, I, I just there were more people chiming in with that note than I expected. I mean, I, I think mm. I'm in, in President Obama's camp to say that Sony did wrong by stepping down from this movie. I think it was a, a cowardly act, probably, for them to censor themselves. Do you guys have any feeling about that? I felt very disappointed. I felt shocked that I somehow suddenly felt it was my patriotic duty to see the interview. And I felt, um, you know, appalled that Sony bailed. Now they seem to be claiming that they didn't actually bail and trying to have it multiple ways. They also, it was the film distributors who all announced in tandem that they were going to not show the movie, which then led Sony to say, well, I guess we won't release it anyway. Um, but which, they could have gone straight to video. They could have done lots of other release strategies, right? And they Put may it online. still. They're now saying that they may try and release it online. I mean, they just keep kind of wiggling back and forth in terms of what they're going to do. It's, it certainly doesn't seem beyond the realm of possibility that the oh, it's just the distributor's part uh, of the story. It might have been a little bit coordinated. But it is tricky. If it is the distributor's, like really the the head of Regal Cinemas, like the guy who owns a bunch of buildings where people sit down in the dark and watch movies, like he's he's in the vanguard of our cyber war with North Korea. Like he's the one who has to be like, no, come to my theater. I promise it won't get blown up. Like I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've personally evaluated whether these terror threats are real and I'm going to, push forward and in the name of Uncle Sam, like show the interview and have it open on Christmas Day or whenever it was supposed to open. Like that does seem like a tough position for that guy to be in. I mean, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, very. I, I wish that guy had made that decision. And I or I wish that, um, you know, even if those theater owners didn't want to take on that responsibility, that Sony had had been more vehement about saying, fine, it's up to theater owners, of course, but we'll also be making it available day and date on for download and buy it through iTunes. Right. That's the kind of choice they they should have made. I completely agree that regional theater owners, especially after what happened with The Dark Knight, should not be, or The Dark Knight Rises, whatever, the the theater assassination, should not be responsible for making this decision. But but ultimately, it's in Sony's hands, and they have a lot of power and a lot of choices. I mean, it's also, you're defending defending something indefensible in the sense that, uh, you know, it's not a movie being shown in one location one time. It's being, you know, blasted out wide to three or four thousand separate locations in which any, you know, in any one, one thing could happen that would make the decision to release it a bad one. And I, you know, I, I, I totally get the risk reward calculus there and, and, and not uh, putting it out. It's eventually it's got, Julia, it's got to go out online in some form or another, and people will watch it as a kind of patriotic duty, practically. I feel like I'm much more likely to watch it now than I was beforehand. I will say that among all the different um, you know, gossipy emails there are to read over, it is interesting to read Seth Rogen's exchange with his producers, who include, I think, I think Amy Pascal is in on this exchange, that that involves softening the images at the end of the interview. Before all this happened, there was already a lot of debate with the Japanese wing of Sony and other parts of the company about exactly what would be shown in this movie. So it, was, it, it wasn't as if North Korea popped up from out of the blue and started threatening about it. They were well aware that there was you know, something that was controversial in their hands. Right. I also find myself wondering whether right now James Franco and Seth Rogen are busily working on some sort of meta comedy about this exact incident. I mean, in a way, what could be delivered into their laps that's better comic material for their next romp than the fact that they are now at the center of this geopolitical storm? Well, right. The whole movie, the whole story feels already like a Seth Rogen movie. You're totally right. 
All right. Well, the movie is The Interview starring uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen. Should it be? Should it not be? Should it be blasted out uh, online? Would you see it as a patriotic duty or avoid it like the plague? Uh, we're at uh, facebook.com slash culturefest. Let us know what you think. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we got? This episode is brought to our listeners by Braintree, which sells code for easy online payments. If you're a developer or product manager searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. It gives you an easy way to accept multiple payment types on mobile with one integration, simple, secure payments with code you can integrate in minutes, best-in-class customer service, and the most secure way to pay. It's no surprise that Braintree is the payments API used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and GitHub. I should also mention here that I believe Slate uses Braintree for its payment service and have had great experiences with it. If you're searching for the right payments platform, check out the Braintree V0 SDK today at braintreepayments.com slash podcast. You can review their documentation, which is simple and concise, play around in their sandbox, and give Braintree a try with no commitment to test your integration before going to production. After you integrate Braintree, the first $50,000 in transactions are fee-free. That's braintreepayments.com slash podcast. We thank them for their support. All right. Well, moving on. In the publication Grantland, the uh, film historian and critic Mark Harris has written a kind of a jeremiad about the state of the movie business. He at one point observes that in 2014, quote, franchises are not a big part of the movie business. They are not the biggest part of the movie business. They are the movie business, period. Twelve of the year's 14 highest grocers are or will spawn sequels. Uh, Dana, what did you what did you make of this? Did you think, yes, this is so timely, exactly right. Uh, Hollywood has become profoundly unoriginal, a factory for making a like product over and over and over again. Or did you think, uh, to a degree, plus ça change? Hollywood's always been in the business of making commercially popular films. It's always been this way. We shouldn't pretend otherwise. You know, I have to say, I think Mark Harris is one of the best writers on the industry, on the entertainment industry out there, because he has a way of framing this question that does sort of sound like an overfamiliar, hand-wringing, plus ça change. The good movies will always find their way through, you know, that, that it sounds like a familiar argument, but he gets the hard numbers out and sort of makes you realize that, you know, we really are entering into another era when it comes to what financially drives the movie business. And I have to say that I came out of this this article feeling something that I rarely feel, which is not excited about the future of movies. I mean, when you look at those <laughs> spreadsheets he provides, oh, my God, I just hope I don't have to review all this shit. It's like the Marvel and DC movies alone. There's 32, I believe, is the number coming out in the next five years, because, of course, Marvel has already sat down and laid, laid out their entire slate of release dates for, for these movies for the next five years. And then when you start to get outside of comic book movies themselves and just into franchise, you know, some sort of a big blockbuster franchise um, and sort of use the, the term comic book movie more more loosely, as he says, then I think there's 70 such movies coming out in the next five years. And so as he rightly points out, even if there are going to be some independently financed or sort of small prestige movies that wiggle their way in between the cracks, it would be very hard to make the argument that there would not be more of them if all of the studio's resources were not being absorbed by this mm. this one genre. Okay, well, Julia, let me let me ask you. You're you're kind of the resident optimist. You know, there's no such thing as a golden age. You know, declinism is the nectar of uh, of the loser. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm trying to 
impute something to you so insulting that you'll scream at me and I'm having trouble coming up with it. But, <laughs> Declinism is uh, the nectar of the loser. I wish I'd said that myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and it seems to me you're the kind of uh, personification of plus ça change on our little panel. So tell me why you think that this argument is wrong, that movies are just as good now as they were in the 1970s or the 1930s. Oof, it's a little hard to do because Mark Harris is so freaking good at his job. <laughs> Check me. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I mean, he's, try. he's anticipated all your arguments. Let me just say that right now. I'm going to try. <laughs> but but first, I will say my favorite thing about it, and it's one of those uh, sort of magazine-making points that's interesting, is in this era of charts and interactives and graphics, he really wows with just a list, right? Like these Marvel and DC slates were announced in the last uh, few months, I think, or at least the Marvel one was. Um, but it's literally just like a box like a formatted table and they just put like a box on the page that just lists all of the Marvel and DC releases and then lists all these other franchise releases. And it's incredible to contemplate. I mean, so it's then a hundred movies that will be released over the next five years. So 20 movies a year. So that's every other week for a year, you know, there will be one of these big monster releases and it's, it is depressing. I mean, we, these movies are often less interesting to talk about than, the movies we get to talk about at this time of year. I mean, the one thing I wondered for you, Dana, is does this article make you feel grateful for the Oscars instead of sad about the Oscars? Yeah. Because the only reason that anything else exists is because this, the only other kind of reward that the studios know besides um, money is, is the cultural prestige lent the by the Oscars. the cultural prestige of the Oscars. So like the only way that a Selma gets made or that Amy Adams gets to do big eyes or whatever else we are going to be talking about for the next few months until the Oscars is because of the, the weird prestige of the Oscars, which usually gets sneered at by critics. But after the Mark Harris piece, I thought, I wonder if all the critics all the world over are just like, thank God for Oscar season. Completely. Or even starting with Birdman, which is a movie that I had, you know, I don't think I loved as much as many did and had some problems with. But I mean, it's a movie that's got aesthetically interesting things and performances and cameras work. And yeah, it made me feel grateful for essentially anything that's slightly outside of that template. Right. But okay, so to try and play my role of the poptimist, there was a little bit of slipperiness in some of Harris's argumentation, including particular, I objected to the line where he talks about how as recently as 1998, you know, in the top 10 uh, or top 20 highest grossing movies of the year, only two were sequels. But of the top 14 grossing movies for 2014, uh, 12 are or will spawn sequels. And are or will spawn is like a slightly devious locution in the middle of that sentence, right? To be a movie that um, is a sequel is derivative and probably boring, but to be a movie that is so inventive and creates a whole new world that it may spawn sequels doesn't necessarily seem like quite the same thing. Uh, you know, so one of those is Guardians of the Galaxy, which, yes, sure, is a comic book movie, but also kind of was an original story that just invented a whole world out of whole cloth. It happened to be cloaked in the um, kind of cape of Marvelliana, but it's not like that was the 18th Batman movie. Like that movie was new and weird and different. And I think even new and weird and different if you had read every Marvel comic book of all time, like that, that movie used... Uh, the imprimatur of Marvel to do something kind of fun. I mean, I, that wasn't my favorite movie ever, but that movie was was doing interesting things with tone uh, and was telling a story that in some ways hadn't been told before. It was no Birdman, but like it's not exactly just another, you know, coop off of the assembly line. 
Uh, then I would also say, hmm, it's interesting that you made the cutoff at 14. Number 15 is Interstellar. Number 16 is Gone Girl. 17 is Divergent. That's another sequel one. But 18 is Neighbors, a comedy, Ride Along, a comedy. You know, the the uh, at 22, we have The Fault in Our Stars. I mean, you know, you can slice and dice the numbers a number of different ways. But I do think part of what we're seeing is that within these contours of you have to be part of a franchise to get the movie made, there are filmmakers who can create inventive work that's exciting and fun. Uh, and then sometimes the work is just derivative and stupid. But the fact of it being a franchise doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Yeah, I mean, and I think he does yeah, allow I mean, that there may all, be two or three or four or twenty of these movies that are good, you know. But it, but the fact is that they the fact the mere fact of their being made is in fact absorbing all of the of that of those resources. Go yeah. ahead, Steve. Sorry. Oh, I just, I think first of all, I think it's totally fair to make a declinist argument about any any individual medium as long as you keep your conscience clean by noting that there's a renaissance going on somewhere else. So. There's right now, uh, television is the most exciting, you know, uh, storytelling mass medium uh, it going. Very, very smart auteur-like people are are governing, especially the prestige end of it. Uh, the business model um, is cultivating uh, new distinctive voices, long-form storytelling. Television is absolutely in a golden age. Therefore, I am now free to say that Hollywood movies sucked, and they've sucked for a while now. I mean, I think by and large, you could say the last 30 years is probably... You know, if you want to go back to the advent of sound and divide it up into thirds or quarters, this is one of the worst 25, 30, 35-year periods we've been through for uh, for American movies. It's interesting to think about what makes a golden age in Hollywood. I think there were, there were inarguably, there were two, the 1930s and the 70s. The 30s was because you had the first generation of rationalizing managerial talent coming in and wresting the business away from the moguls. Well, what happened in the 1970s, the business model was falling apart. The studios were all in the red. They were in the process of getting bought on the cheap, often as tax dodges by large corporations, and the moguls were dying. Um, and no one knew how to run the business. And into the vacuum came uh, incredibly young, unqualified people who spoke to the counterculture for the first time. And they had lost their business for 20 years to TV. So the fact that you could say fuck and the fact that you could show uh, bullet exit wounds, you know, as in Bonnie and Clyde or MASH, suddenly brought young people into the theaters because this was what they couldn't see on TV. You finally had a competitive product to television. Well, what is it about the business model today? I mean, it's really two things. It's, It's the advent of wide release. And Harris goes into this, but somewhat indirectly. He says that basically Hollywood is an anticipation machine, and it makes you can't wait to see movies that when you see them don't live up to the intensity of the anticipation. It's because they're blown out to 4,000 screens across the country simultaneously with a business model that hinges completely on the opening weekend. And secondly, their global product. I mean, I've beat this hobby horse a few times before on the show, but it's an interesting one, I think, is that the two or three friends of mine who've made livings as screenwriters all say the same thing, which is it's becoming increasingly hard to write a movie, a Hollywood movie, because you're speaking across so many national boundaries and cultural and linguistic boundaries, you're not speaking to a specific national sensibility anymore at all. You're speaking a kind of global patois. You're speaking Hollywood is what you're speaking. You're you're basically speaking people who've grown up genre-saturated and having seen tons and tons of Hollywood movies. And so, of course, what you feed them is recycled. It has to be. The common experience is the medium in which you are trying to communicate. Uh, and, and, and therefore, movies have this kind of almost bizarrely self-referential and generic 
quality. Um, and it doesn't conduce to a golden age. We can't pr- pretend to plus ça change. It is different and it is worse. Well, I just wanted to point out, Steve, that's, that, was, that was well said. Another, I'm not sure I agree with you about there having been only two golden ages in the history of cinema, but, but, uh, but your point about the, um, the sort of rise and fall of the studio mogul is very well made. But I wanted to, to, to move to a point that Harris makes that I didn't know at all before reading this, which is that the, uh, the, the way that studio CEOs come into their jobs has changed radically and is continuing to change. And he makes a point. Now, I'm not going to remember the individual names and who runs which studio, but he makes the point that studio heads used to come from entertainment. They used to be movie producers or TV people or, you know, people who had been involved in producing entertainment and sort of rose to the top that way. And that now they're being imported directly from other large corporations that just make widgets of whatever kind. And so movies are becoming more and more widgety or in the from, eyes of those making them. Or from branches of the studio that are not involved in the production of the entertainment, but that are involved in the merchandising of the entertainment or the marketing of the entertainment. Or, you know, that there are now two people of the four major Hollywood studios. Two of them are run by people who have no direct experience producing films and that that's a Hollywood first. And I agree that that was one of the, the more troubling points and more unfamiliar points in Harris's piece. I mean, I think you're right, Steve, that the... There is just like a sameness to a lot of these movies that is exhausting and overwhelming and that even whatever was inventive and delightful about Guardians of the Galaxy, which is the top grossing film of the year and did please lots of people at the cinema, it's still within the context of like it has to be a space western and the whole the fate of the whole universe has to be at stake and there's a gigantic climactic battle and there's just a sameness to the structure of these things, even if... Uh, producers and directors can add a little bit of panache and gloss and distinctiveness to the characters and the writing and the visual textures of these films. Um, but like, do we, are we anti-sequel in general? Like, why do people, why are people frustrated by the sequelness or the comic bookness? I can only answer that from the point of view of someone who has to write on them, which is that I would really like to have something new to say. Like, how many times can I evaluate products that are so similar to each other and bring any degree of analytical clarity to it. I mean, honestly, I just I just want something new on my plate to talk about. So maybe I'm not at all in the same position as somebody who wants to go eat popcorn, enjoy them, and then have them disappear. I have to go home and say something about them. So it's like you've become a restaurant mm-hmm. critic, but you just have to go to the same restaurant yeah, every and night it's McDonald's. And, and write a new article about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but also, I mean, you know, to stick with the food metaphor. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. There just isn't a history of Die Hard 3 being as good as Die Hard. And, and I actually really I mean, like Die Hard not. 3. Is that the one in New York? I, I know, that's that true, but, so Die Hard, but Die Hard... <laughs> but Die Hard is one of truly one of the great genre movies ever made. Die Hard Three is a nice movie. It's a good action movie. But all right, well, we don't want to end on a downbeat declinist note. Um, even though I do enjoy the nectar of the loser, um, <laughs> let's um, let's talk about sequels that succeeded. I mean, the fa- obviously the famous one is Godfather Two, which you know many people consider not only better than Godfather One, but maybe the greatest American movie ever made. Uh, good sequels. Are there any, Julia? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, certainly the best of the Star Trek movies. Um, yeah, there's plenty of, I mean, a lot of people, I think a lot of people think The Empire Strikes Back is one of the best Star Wars movies. I mean, I really liked the first reboot of the Planet of the Apes movies. Like the, I forget which one came first, the Rise or the Dawn. I know, because Dawn and Rise, who knows which comes first. <laughs> the, do you, it depends whether you rise before <laughs> Dawn. I think I think the Rise comes before the Dawn, so they are very early risers, those apes. The, the snooze button of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> the espresso of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> 
the crumpet of the Planet of the Apes. Anyway, I loved that movie. I thought that movie was um, slightly pared down and visually inventive. And yeah, to get made, to do all the beautiful things they did with the fog and the bridge and the kind of focus narrowness of the fight scene um, and whatever, the goofiness of the James Franco doctor. They couldn't just say, let's make an original movie about a cataclysm in San Francisco. They were like, we're going to reboot Planet of the Apes. And somehow that made it easier to justify that that movie would be made. Um, but I loved that. I thought that was great. Steve, favorite sequel? I've been racking my brains. I can't think of, uh, I mean, Godfather 2, I guess, but that's just, I, I have to do better than that. All right. I'll, I'll, by the end of this show, I'll have come up with a sequel that I like more than the first uh, installment. Uh all right. Well, the uh, essay that gave rise to this conversation is called The Birdcage, How Hollywood's Toxic and Worsening Addiction to Franchises Changed Movies Forever in 2014. It's by Mark Harris, and it's on Grantland. Check it out and uh, tell us what you think. What are the best sequels of all time? Are sequels inherently uncreative and dull? Let us know. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, moving on. So setting aside movies that just use Christmas for the usual lacrimose uh, purposes, the genre of Christmas movies is kind of amazing. And it comprehends way more movies than I anticipated before I started Googling around. But some of my all-time favorite movies I'd forgotten were Christmas movies. I sort of half forgot Die Hard as a Christmas movie. Uh, but The Apartment by Billy Wilder, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, a terrific, uh, a fairly recent movie. All use uh, the ref, all use uh, Christmas as a background. Um, Dana, I'm just going to roll the ball over to you and watch you like dribble it between your legs and do a 360 dunk with this one. <laughs> Christmas movies, go. <sighs> you know, it's funny. I actually just hosted an event here in New York that was a, a Slate movie party, and the theme was Christmas movies. And, you know, me and some other Slatesters and also a, a guy from the Flophouse podcast who was wonderful came in and talked about not necessarily our favorite Christmas movies, but you know, themes in Christmas movies that seem to return year after year and, and you know, the different sorts that there are, the dark ones, the ironic ones, the sappy ones, the, uh, what others, the, the slasher ones. I mean, there's a sort of a Christmas movie for, for every genre. Um, but I don't know that I have a general observation to make about Christmas movies, except that I have no objection to them, as Julia seems to. Maybe she'll get to that in a minute. And I have a favorite one or a favorite few that I'd be happy to talk about if we're going to do that. Um, but I'm not unhappy at this time of year when all the familiar Christmas movies start to be cranked out again. And I usually rewatch at least two or three of them every year. I don't know what it is about Christmas movies, but I just don't really love watching movies over and over again. I'd rather watch a new movie, usually, unless it's Sneakers, and <laughs> which is unfortunately not a Christmas movie. So I don't have that habit of like, oh, I'm going to watch It's a Wonderful Life again, or oh, I'm going to watch even Die Hard again, which is probably my favorite Christmas movie. Um, like, I don't, I don't know. That's just not what my family did at Christmas is like sit around and watch the same old movie. So I don't have that kind of intrinsic tradition of like, oh, gather around with the hot cocoa and popcorn and let's all wrap presents while we watch X. I just, that's not part of my life. I don't object for other people for whom it is. Okay, well, let me, right, you've given me something to work with here because I've got a tenuous theory as to what these movies are about. So, of course, they're overwhelmingly secular. So they're about Santa, Christmas lights, all the, you know, apparatus of, you know, mostly overwhelmingly uh, uh, secular apparatus of Christmas right around the holiday. But they strike a kind of semi-spiritual note about being haunted by your lost best self, Right, so they 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 begin with what's depressing or slightly uh, overwhelming about the time of year, which is that somehow you've you've lost 
a hold of your you know your your own the the best possibility of who you might be and it's about in the course of the secular parable rediscovering it or reacquiring it this is part of die hard it's part of uh, uh the apartment uh, it's it's part of uh, bad santa which i watched finally as uh, as homework for this bad santa uh, dana is not a bad movie actually it's pretty funny it's yeah no bad movie. santa is, is great and it's a great take on on the christmas carol story essentially which i think is not only the best christmas story but but one of the best i think the christmas carol as a story just as its structure of a story is one of the great stories well, of that all time. was going to be that's my tenuous thesis which, which is that all christmas movies qua christmas movies worth their salt are derived from the original which is charles dickens a christmas carol right yeah? so even even the grinch right the grinch is a direct retelling of the christmas carol and is also about finding your lost best self and i was going to say that i don't know if it counts since it's a half hour tv show but the grinch is something that i rewatch every year and i find it spiritually cleansing to watch it mm-hmm. every year also yeah. die hard is kind of, isn't isn't uh, john mcclane sort of searching yes! for his lost best self absolutely yeah is this true about all movies, though? Now that I'm thinking about it, like, isn't that the arc of all movies, or is Julia, it specifically Christmas? Do not Christmas cloud movies? the discussion with <laughs> with my facts. <laughs> with facts. All right. Or withdrawn. Withdrawn. With facts or insight. That's that's <laughs> this time of year especially. Um, all right. So let's and it's get, a wonderful it, life. Of course, it's a wonderful life. Is also about finding your lost best self, right? Directly so. Right. Well, it's kind of amazing to think that Dickens came up with a secular myth slash parable that allows us to have a a common, you know, completely non-denominational, non-sectarian experience that is quasi-religious and not entirely sentimental. I mean, my favorite thing to watch every year at Christmas time is the um, uh, is the Richard Williams animated Christmas Carol, which is on YouTube and is simply amazing. It's it's it really has reduced that story down to its. I mean, it's an elemental story to begin with, and it's not an especially long. Uh, book and part of the problem with movie versions of it, Dana, is they need to be bulked out to ninety minutes. This thing is twenty twenty five minutes long. It is so beautifully animated, and I have a piece of trivia for you. Do you know who voices Scrooge in uh, the the Richard Williams animated version from the early seventies? No guess. I haven't seen it. It is Alistair Sim. Oh, okay. So, see, the movie that I was going to bring in as my all-time favorite Christmas movie is um, is the nineteen fifty one Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim as Scrooge, which, yes. in my opinion, is the only Christmas Carol. And if you love any other one, you don't truly appreciate the greatness of that story. I agree. I agree. Other other than the animated one, but but Jane, I have to ask. It's a shot in the dark. What's your favorite line? from the 1951 Alistair Sim Christmas Carol. Oh, I mean, I can almost quote that whole last scene where he wakes up on Christmas yeah. morning from heart, by the, heart. The the, the whole, I think, improvised, probably improvised kind of comical scene where Alistair Sim, this is actually the scene that I showed at this Christmas yes. party where we were supposed to bring in our favorite Christmas scene. And by the way, Steve, an, an, a, an attendee at that event came up to me afterwards and essentially grabbed me by the collar and told me that I have to see that Richard Williams animated Christmas oh, Carol so you good. were talking but, but about. But what's the, what's the I mean, I, okay, I'm not going to make you pick, but if you had to guess what my favorite line is from that Alistair Sim wake up scene. I don't know. There's that whole speech about I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as a schoolboy. I must stand on my head. I must stand That's on my it. head. <laughs> I suspect I suspect that I must stand on my head had I to be a piece of improvisation. Unless it's in the story. I haven't read the Dickens story in so long that I don't know if Scrooge says he has to stand on his head. Yeah, but Alistair Sim goes into this whole crazy childlike improvisation where he's prancing around in his nightgown yeah. and yeah. after the incredible heaviness of what's come before because that is a very dark, very grim movie. Also in which the, the, the presence of post-war Britain I think is just 
so tangible in that movie. The sets feel so barren and the special effects yes. are so, yep. so slight, but so spooky. And a person will just sort of be made transparent to be a ghost. That's pretty much it for the special effects. But after the darkness and gloom of what's come before, just the joy and silliness of that last scene, it just gets me every time. Absolutely, Dana. I finally have occasion to say you are an I, you and I are as two marble fawns <laughs> in a near embrace whispering and cooing into one another one another's ears where uh, and where uh, and Julia Turner is nowhere to be found I'm just some uncarved plinth of marble over in the corner <laughs> you're discarded marble chips uh, but yeah enough. for several years go past including I think last year I've actually done a live tweet an official sort of watching of, of the 1951 Christmas Carol at some point near Christmas and just invited people to come watch along with me and basically weep at all the various you know spot the stations of the Scrooge cross in which one must weep. Yeah, the whole thing is available, I believe, on YouTube. Uh, um, you have to watch a, an ad, and then the whole thing is uh, there for the taking. Julia, this is this is like our reenactment of the Christmas Carol, and Dana and I are are spectral presences, allowing you to reacquaint yourself with your own humanity. <laughs> and you you have the free will to take this opportunity or uh, or 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 ravage it and and reject it and be lost forever. I will happily watch this movie again, which I'm sure I've seen at some point, but not in years, uh, and t- attempt to open my wizened heart to your spirit of reanimation. But it is, I mean, I tend to think of that mode of like, let me embrace a newer, more generous hearted self and the potential for reinvention is like a New Year's thing. Like you can sort of have that moment uh, not not intermediated through cinema at this time of year of like, oh, darkness has come. The darkest, the longest, darkest night of the year has passed. Like we begin to look forward towards springtime and renewal and whatever amazing self we could possibly be in 2015. I mean, is it just, is is it sort of a pagan, like, moment of renewal, or is it actually Christmas-associated, or is I it... think it's got to be Christmas-associated only because for for children who have, who had Christmas and then grow up to become parents who give it to their kids, which is by no means universal, and I don't mean at all to pretend it is, but it's, it's overwhelmingly present in many of our lives, it is a huge thing right i mean it is this you know you know and the fact that santa plays such a critical role in some of these movies i mean obviously bad santa miracle on 34th street uh i think the in the ref isn't someone a santa i can't remember but you know the idea that you had a a, what becomes over the course of your er, very early life a patently absurd faith that you loved i mean you cherished i have one kid who believes in one kid who doesn't and you see where that threshold is um you know, falls in a in a young life, but I, this discussion can't end without me saying what my favorite, other favorite uh, Christmas movie is. And Julia, this is the this is the ace. This is the trump card. Elf. I love Elf. Who doesn't love Elf? I would even consider watching that a second time. The Ice Queen. The Ice Queen melting. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Die Hard. I mean, I like I like for Christmas movies basically a movie that happens to have some Christmas woven in, but isn't fundamentally about gathering around the hearth side and and works those nerves of uh, redemption and reflection slightly in a slightly more sideways manner. But Die Hard is just a great movie. Like I would rewatch Die Hard in a heartbeat. I also want to make a case for an utterly random movie that I that I can imagine rewatching at this time of year and that I associate with Christmas, even though it has nothing to do with Christmas, which is Miracle, the Kurt Russell joint about the um, 
1980 uh, hockey victory in the Olympics yeah, over Russia. Yeah. Have you seen that movie, Steve? No. <laughs> I just love sports movies, which to me are about like similar, slightly different, but similar sense of like, can you be a better self? Can you find like the amazingness within? Can you overcome your doubts and your woes and your weaknesses and your anguish and 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 through hard work and perseverance, like reinvent yourself and Miracle is just a great schmaltzy, like down the middle sports movie. From when about? Oh, it was made like I think in the early aughts uh, or mid aughts, and it's you know it's just like it's like there's like Kurt Russell was playing a professional hockey player. No, and then no, was... he plays the coach. Ah, he plays yeah. the coach who. Oh, I wanted Kurt Russell on skates. There's no Kurt Russell on ice. <laughs> I think he may like you know galoot on skates at the sideline as he urges his you know young strapping bucks to uh, go back and and forth on their skates and and whiz around and beat those mean 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 russians but um <laughs> i mean there's like no moral complexity in the movie but it's really it's full of ice it's got all that ice in it so i associate it with christmas time and winter <laughs> I love dana dana you sounded like the sultan of brunei get me kurt russell on skates it's my kid's ninth birthday party <laughs> Oh, dear. Okay, we've gone someplace nonsensical. Listen, this is, if ever there's been a Facebook bait uh, conversation we've had, this is it. This is the Beatles one. So come to Facebook.com. Tell us what your favorite Christmas movie is. Do you hate them? It's amazing we had this whole conversation and didn't talk about It's a Wonderful Life. We mostly avoided it. But come to the Facebook page, as I said. Let us know what you think about Christmas movies. In the meantime, now is the moment in our uh, show where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, since we talked about the Sony hacks and, and whether or not it was appropriate to uh, to spread the gossip found therein all over the internet, I think I'm just going to endorse one sort of very sweet email that came up in the uh, in the dive the deep dive into the Sony um, trove, which was Channing Tatum's email to all of his producers upon learning that uh, 22 Jump Street, which was released this year, I think had won the weekend and done better than I can't remember what the statistics were, but done better than any comedy's opening weekend in 20 years or something. This great news had just broke. And, and Channing Tatum, Tatum writes this adorable, excited email that's basically "fuck yeah, we did it" to uh, to his whole production team. <laughs> yeah. And so that came up in the hack. It was posted on Gawker, and we'll link to it on our show page. But it's a wonderful moment when you realize that Channing Tatum essentially writes exactly like you would think Channing Tatum would write, and it's kind of <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's excellent, uh, Julia. What do you have? I am not a regular watcher of Letterman. But people who are know that there's a Christmas tradition on his show, which is that for years now he has invited Darlene Love um, on to sing her song, Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home. And this was first released on a Phil Spector Christmas album in 1963 uh, that maybe got overshadowed by the events of the fall of 1963. It's, it's a song that never quite got purchased and then somehow became an institution. And for, I think, more than 20 years now, she's performed on Letterman, and she just performed it for the last time. And it was a, a sort of beautiful rendition. Uh, and you can go online and watch her singing it there. But I just kind of love that story, especially since you think of Letterman as like the ultimate non-softy, right? For him to have kind of a sweet, softy Christmas tradition um, was beautiful, I thought. All right. Well, um, first of all, I want to point out that our crack intern, Josephine Livingston, uh, emailed us uh, during the course of the taping of the show to say, to provide a list of plausible sequels that are great movies. Now, I agree that if you're willing to accept that The Silence of the Lambs is a sequel to Manhunter, I believe, is the first movie featuring um, uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter, then absolutely. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is one of the great genre 
pieces of all time jonathan demi movie it's just it's just it is it is close to a flawless uh movie as as there is whether it's really a sequel i don't know if i'll give that one to you but evil dead 2 absolutely that's where that series kicks in and then a really interesting one is the sequel to the french movie jean de florette is men of the spring or men in des source or whatever it's called which is a great movie so i stand uh, somewhat corrected um so i have a pound the table endorsement for this show um and i uh, you can spare me your uh, recriminatory emails about how it's experiential and geographically specific it is those things this is something you need to do in the course of your life uh you have to find time to do this because i finally did i drove it's actually not that close to me it's not super far but i drove an hour or whatever it was to go to the clark museum in williamstown massachusetts uh it's uh it's a singer sewing heiress's old mansion uh, it's affiliated with, but not part of Williams College, and it's a museum, very small, very intimate uh, museum that now has expanded. It has a larger modern wing that just opened, but the old part of it is an extraordinary collection. They were a big collectors of Winslow Homer, but well beyond that of, of, of French Impressionist and post-Impressionist masters, some old masters, including a Rembrandt, but it's a it's a very intimate beautifully presented collection in which you really it's and it's rarely crowded almost never crowded and your interaction with the art is so close and so intense and so small scale it doesn't there's there's none of the feel of a blockbuster about it uh and the highlights are i mean the renoir painting of the onions is just one of the great paintings it's right right there for you to really contemplate um uh, uh, for as long as you want. I loved going to the Clark, but then this is only half the endorsement because then you drive only another 10 minutes to Mass Mocha and you get the other extreme of the experience of art, which is a huge old industrial uh, building that goes on and on and on. It's it's really almost an infinite amount of open and large space for huge installations. And they do it beautifully they do performances there uh but it's it's filled with interactive incredible in, in, you know sort of in, mostly installation based art including uh, a 20 year loaner for saw, some major works by wall works by Saul Lewitt I'm telling you the Clark and Massmoka are the badass twins of Berkshire County <laughs> art world you 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 f- find a time in your life when you're around the Berkshires you're either in Boston or Albany or even New York City get in a zip car and take that trip and tell me about it. It was really, truly one of the better art excursions I've taken in my life. Cool. All right. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Julia. Merry Christmas to you, Steve. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas, Dana Stevens. I must stand on my head, Steve. Do you think that we're all the ghosts? Are you the ghost of Christmas past and I'm the ghost of Christmas future <laughs> and Dana's the ghost of Christmas present? Right? That's that like could could So I'm the guy hiding the children under my robe. I'm the worst ghost. Uh, yeah. I, that one doesn't fit as much. I feel like Steve is the the look backer and I'm the look forward That I'm, definitely works. But I'm not sure that that means you should get Honestly, stuck. I feel like I'm Scrooge himself. I'm so identified with Scrooge. Really? Yeah, especially that Alistair Sim Scrooge. I mean, everyone is, right? It's exactly what we were talking about in the segment. I feel like everybody mm. who feels like they could be a better person is a Scrooge, but he gets to me. I mm. am the soul of ignorance and want. <laughs> um, on that note, uh, fun show. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. 
Our producer is Joel Meyer. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And Joel, you have another title. What is it? Managing producer of podcasts. And the managing producer of podcasts is also Joel Meyer. And our Twitter feed is not Joel Meyer. It's actually Slate Cult Fest. For Danny Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Merry Christmas. And we'll see you soon. Bye.